is very appropriate as we come to uh, this point in the Days of Unleavened Bread, because it was a dissertation, again, and a review of God bringing Israel through the Red Sea, and I do believe that happened on the seventh day of unleavened bread. So just as we were approaching this last night, not by my planning, but perhaps God's unseen hand there caused us to be right at that point at that time because it was meat and due season and certainly a good time to rehearse uh, the story in our history, uh, a story that is going to be repeated. It's interesting we get to the end of chapter 107, and it says, Save us, O Lord our God, in verse 47, and gather us from, from among the heathen to give thanks to your holy name. And we are approaching that time very soon now. I don't know exactly when, but very soon when God is going to begin to gather his people to finish his end time work, to build his temple, to build Jerusalem, and to finish and show that he is God. So we come then to a break in the Psalms. This is the fifth division and the final one. And again, some of the commentators and scholars see the similarities between it, the last or fifth one, and the fifth book of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy basically rehearses and reviews all of the Old Testament and the administration of Moses as well. And it is a final preparation for them to go into the promised land. And here in Psalm 107, we have a very similar thing because we've gone through the difficulties in life in the first section. We saw in the second and third the difficulties that Christ went through and thereby and therefore what we also have seen. Then in the fourth section, we saw over and over that God reigns in the universe and that we're to give thanks to Him and get our minds and our thoughts and our attitudes on God and therefore off ourselves and our own pitiful problems. And now we come to this seventh, which, as one scholar termed it, pictures the church rise and return and her everlasting glory and praise in the eternal. I don't think you could say it too much better than that. They recognize that this is the final section, and that it is about God beginning to gather and to deliver His people, and the preparations that are needed in order for that to happen. So it's very timely for us right now, and we're starting to receive rain. I don't know whether it's the former and the latter rains he promised in the first month, but out here rains always welcome. Uh, if it gets too loud, I'll just quit and we'll just sit and listen to the rain. Anyway, he starts this out by saying in chapter 107, Oh, give thanks to the Eternal, for He is good. That's pretty much the theme throughout the fourth section, and it's the same thought with which he begins the fifth. For His mercy endures forever. And this is a timely place to mention that again, because we're going to see the mercy of God begin to be dem demonstrated here in this section. The book of Psalms is a very prophetic book. And we're going to see the prophecies of the end time as we go through here very much in play, and it sounds in many places just like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and some of those that we've become fairly familiar with over the last years. He says, Let the redeemed of the Lord, who are under, or who is under redemption now, the New Testament church. So it's a projection forward to this day, even beyond the early New Testament church, which were also the redeemed from the world. But right now, we are in the last chapter of that, and the last group of people to be redeemed in this age. So he is the one who has redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. The enemy, ultimately, is Satan the devil and his demons, 
and the culture that he has espoused and built upon this earth, and then the enemy is we ourselves and our human nature, which we are trying to put down to get rid of. Well, I guess we can't get rid of our nature, but we can uh, certainly try to get rid of the pride and the ego and the vanity and the problems that our nature causes until that nature is changed. But he is the one who has, through Christ's sacrifice, paid the sacrifice or the penalty of sin so that we might be redeemed. And these days have everything to do with that. Now, the last day of unleavened bread uh, fits in with the theme of what we're getting into right here. Seven days they marched away from Mitzrayim, or as it is typified, sin. And then on the seventh day, it only makes sense that God would have delivered them with that great deliverance through the sea. Probably happened during this 24-hour period that we are now within. Notice in, he says, and gathered them out of the lands from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. So immediately here, in this new section, he begins talking about gathering the people. You might keep your finger here. I'm going to go back to Isaiah 43 for just a moment. I've not been tying in too many scriptures in this series because of the length of the book itself, but... Uh, you may remember and be familiar that he begins a new thought uh, in Isaiah 40. Uh, 39 is the final chapter on Hezekiah. And I think Herbert Armstrong was a very good type of Hezekiah, and many of the things in his life occurred in the same way. He even had the heart attack and came back and lived more years, even as Hezekiah was about to die, and God granted him more years. And he certainly showed the world everything we had, just as Hezekiah showed Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he said that there would be peace during his life there at the end in chapter 39, but that his sons would be taken and made eunuchs in, the, in Babylon. And certainly after Herbert Armstrong died, the church was taken back to Babylon, and we became powerless, or in that sense, spiritual eunuchs in the world unable to regenerate, unable to create uh, any growth in numbers in the church, essentially in the position of neutered or eunuched. So I think that that is very much the end chapter there in chapter 39 of Isaiah about Herbert Armstrong and the former temple. Then it talks in Isaiah 40 of a voice crying in the wilderness and what God is going to do to reveal His glory in verse 5, that the message is the grass is withered and that we are to behold our God, that He is coming soon and His reward is with Him and we have work to do ahead of Him. And He tells us to renew our strength in chapter 41 and goes on and shows how we are the chosen seed of Abraham, his friend, in verse 8 of chapter 41. Tells us not to fear in verse 10. Then he repeats it again in 14 and all through here. Uh, and he says he will bring good tidings at the end of chapter 41, verse 27, and say to Jerusalem and, Jer and to Zion to be cheerful, to understand that God is going to solve the problems. Then we head into chapter 43 where I was going, and he says in verse 1, Fear not, I have redeemed you. He uses the same word he uses right there in Psalm 107. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. Some of these things happened with the people at the Red Sea. They happened at the Jordan. They happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. So he's speaking of the type of things that his people would face and that he would protect them. But it's an end time uh, fulfillment. John the Baptist fulfilled this uh, in his life. But there has to be a final fulfillment of it here in the end time. Down to verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed, what is our seed? Abraham's seed, Israel, but truly 
Abraham was not Abram anymore. He received a more spiritual name from God, namely Abraham, once God saw that he was going to do what he was supposed to do. So we are Abraham's seed, the New Testament says, as New Testament spiritual Christians. So they are the ones who are not to fear. He will bring the spiritual seed of Abraham from the east, from the uh, south, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. And he does tell us in the book of Haggai that right at the end, in conjunction with the two witnesses, he is going to cause the people to be stirred and to come to build the temple. So that is the setting that we have for the end. And now we go back to Psalm 107. I wanted to give us that much background review to see that this is talking about the same time frame. He's talking to the redeemed and gathering them from every direction. Verse 4, they wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. Has not the church been basically wandering from place to place, trying to find spiritual food, trying to find uh, meat, trying to find answers, and finding very little? So we have people washing from group to group to group, back and forth, and we don't have many new people at all, very, very few but people coming in the front door, out the back door, and onto the next, searching, looking, and not finding much. That's the way he said it would be. Wandered in the spiritual wilderness, you see, in a solitary way. Each man for himself trying to find the answers. They found no city to dwell in. Our spiritual houses have been torn down. Once we had congregations in almost every well, I say city, almost every town, you know, if it had any size at all. But now they're gone. They've disappeared. They aren't there anymore. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. <coughs> there again, you have Amos, what is it, seven or eight, about the spiritual famine, not a physical bread. Then they cried to the Eternal in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses, much as he did the Israelites in Ephraim, I mean Ephraim and Mitzrayim. Uh, and he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. He's going to mention that city of habitation again, in the, uh, well, toward the end of this chapter. He is preparing... Villages or Jerusalem to be built as towns without walls, as Zechariah uh, 2 says. But he is also going to be, use those same people to rebuild Jerusalem, to establish it again. A city of habitation. Now we know from many verses at this point that Jerusalem became uninhabited and desolate for many generations, as the scriptures so readily attest. But these that he's redeemed and is going to call together are going to rebuild and redo. And it will then be a city of habitation. He says that's the city that he wishes to inhabit. So if he's going to go there, that's where he's going to send his people. I had an interesting thought. I think it's gone through my mind before, but... Uh, in terms of the Arabs who claim that the Middle East is theirs. They say to the Jews, we were here before you were. This is our land. Get out of our land. Now, of course, we in Anglo-Saxon America, for the most part, have been on the side of the Jews because we identify, by and large, with them better than we do with the Arabs. But the Arabs are Ishmael, another son of Abraham as well, and our half-brothers. But 
I noted that this morning. I think we were going through a, a scripture, and it, it just my mind began to kind of turn on it. That well, when Abraham and when Israel going across the Red Sea and wandering, and then into the Promised Land, in both cases, when they got to the land, it was full of black people, all the tribes of Ham. Well, if that was the case, and it was over there, then does the birthright or the favor or the ownership of that land not belong to the sons of Ham rather than the sons of Ishmael? The Bible clearly states that it was the tribes of Ham who were in the promised land when Abraham went there and when Israel went there. So where's evidence over there of that? There simply is none. So, maybe the Arabs do have a valid first claim over there. Not the Jews, and not Ham, because if this is the promised land, then this is where Ham was. And God took it from them and gave it to Abraham, and then they came back later, and he gave it to Israel when they came out of the wilderness. We don't necessarily need to take the Jews' side in the Middle East. I think it belongs to Ishmael. And I think this land belonged to Ham and then to Abraham. Interesting. Ham and Abraham. Uh, why did God give him that exact name? Interesting thought. Anyway, they wandered in the wilderness. They found no city to, to dwell in. There wasn't anything there. And then he brought them to a city of habitation. Verse 7. Oh, that men would praise the Eternal for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Didn't we just sing that? Oh, that men would praise their God. That's the one we did after the sermonette. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. When that remnant begins to come together, they're going to find true spiritual meat from the Scriptures which show the answers to the church's problems and to our greatest longings in terms of our relationship with God. Verse 10, Such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, we are not in physical captivity yet. Our nation will soon be, but we have been in spiritual captivity. And did not God tell us there in Isaiah 52 that Babylon is walking all over us and to break those bonds and to sit up and quit being walked on by Babylon? And that's right in just before Passover as uh, recorded in chapter 53. And then 54, he talks about Blessings beginning again to come to those who are drawn together to finish his work. So, the Psalms are bearing out those same stories that we read in Isaiah. Verse 11, Because they rebelled against the words of God and condemned the counsel of the Most High. We began to not utterly deny God, but it became lip service and not of the heart. And as a result, that is rebellion. It is a more subtle form, but it's still rebellion. Verse 12, Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. When the church fell apart, was there anyone to help? No. It says there was no man among them who could lead them or guide them or bring them out of it. Uh, that's in Isaiah 51, I think, that that would be the case. So when Herbert Armstrong died, there was no one for us to look to when the Tkachas began to give us false doctrine and lead us back into Babylon, so it just fell apart. This has been fulfilled in the church. 
Then they cried to the Eternal in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. So He shows how this will progress, and that this is going to come to pass. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death, and broke their bands asunder. And the Messiah, in one of those, it says, let us break their bonds asunder, even as he tells us to do that in Isaiah 52. Oh, that men would praise the Eternal for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. I guess if we got this when we sang it a few minutes ago, I wouldn't need to go through here. We sang it, did we just mouth the words? Or when we sing those things, do we really think about what they're saying? Do we get the message? I think we tend to. I know as, as I sing those and go over those words from the Psalms, uh, it, it tends to register in my mind that that's a Bible study. That's a prayer. That's something we can sing to God. Perhaps it's more pleasant to hear it sung than to hear it talked about, but Perhaps some expounding is needed as well. We can sing it, but then let's try to pull it down and see how it fits our lives, because that's the important thing. What does this mean to us? If it doesn't mean anything to us, and we're just reading words, why bother? Do we see God in our lives? Um... Verse 15, Oh, that men would praise the God, I read that, for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he has broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Now, if you go on a little further, we were in Isaiah 43 there, and the story continues. Chapter 44 talks about removing our clouds, our sins as a cloud in one day. And then it goes on and talks about an end-time Cyrus and that he will cause him to do... God's will, not that he would otherwise, but he will cause him to. And it says that God there will break the gates of brass and the bars of iron and reveal to him the hidden and the secret things. So we have got an absolute parallel here of what God says he's going to be doing here in the end time. And he has not done those things yet that are spoken of in Isaiah. He's not given those temple vessels and the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and the historical records, and all the things that we need to finish the work to anyone to date in history. They are still there waiting to be uncovered. So those are pro that is a prophecy yet unfulfilled. And it has to be done very soon now to fit in the end time because we're almost there. So this is going to happen quite soon and quite suddenly when it comes. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. And to one degree or another, we're all spiritual fools, are we not? We know to do better, and yet we are sometimes so very, very foolish in the way we act and the things we think and do. Their soul abhors all manner of food, and they draw near to the gates of death. And I think that in some respects, that is so very true, it gets wearisome, it gets tiresome, it gets hard to continue on and have patience and wait for God to do what He is going to do. And it gets to the point we get tired of hearing. We just abhor all meat. <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel like I've cried wolf, 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 so long you say, oh yeah, here we go again. Maybe that isn't entirely true, but... Uh, you know, you can only get pounded on so long until you begin, it just, it comes to the point that, well, you know, maybe some of you older folks can think back when you were a, child, a teenager and your parents were preaching to you all the time, day in and day out, it never quit, and pretty soon it just came, became like a pounding, and it didn't penetrate much, and some of you at that age are still getting it, aren't you? And it feels that way. That works on me, you know. I get tired of me not doing everything I say I ought to do, and I get tired of you not doing everything I, you say you ought to do, and you get tired of not doing everything you know you ought to do, and you get tired of me not doing everything I ought to do. 
life just gets difficult at times. I don't know what to do other than keep going until all this happens. We can't just go over and sit down and say, all right, I'll just wait. You know, there are people that have done that too. They've gone and found themselves a hill and just said, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait. If Jesus doesn't come rapture me away, don't know what I'll do. After a while, they get hungry and wander off somewhere. You know, it didn't happen the way they thought. Well, the events that we're reading about here, wherever we pick up the Bible, are going to happen. We just don't know when. And it's the when that drives us nuts. That's the way it is. We have to deal with it. But it comes to the point sometimes, well, I don't know whether I want to hear that again or not. It can become tiresome. We can grow weary. Then they cry to the Eternal in their trouble, and He saves them out of their distresses. Now, this isn't a downer section. This says this is how we get, but God saves us. So, the overall viewpoint through here we're going to find is very positive. It isn't negative, even though there are the negativity the negativities we still deal with in everyday life, we're going to see that this is all essentially upward. That we cried out and God didn't hear. Here it says, then they cry and He does hear. See the movement forward there in the way that the story is being presented. He saves them out of their distresses. He sent His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. So all the tearing apart, splintering, tearing down, and negativity is going to end. And God will deliver us from the destruction that we have been suffering. Oh, that men would praise the Eternal for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. We understood the concept when we sang the song a little bit ago, but did we grasp how much that is being fulfilled in our lives at this very moment. You can sing it and see, well, sing to God. That's good. Okay, I like that psalm. But do we see how it fits where we are headed? That's what we're concentrating on and pointing out as we go through here. Verse 22, And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare His works with rejoicing. Now that sounds more like Isaiah 54 when it says, have milk and wine without uh, money and enlarge your tent and make it bigger because more people are going to become and all the blessings that he says he's going to give there. Declare his works with rejoicing. Verse 23, They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters. So he's talking about ocean-faring ships here doing worldwide trade, great waters, These see the works of the Eternal and His wonders in the deep. For He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. If you've ever been in very, very rough seas with huge waves, I don't think I've been in anything over about 35 feet. But it seems like you go way up and then you go way down. I've been in a big boat. There might have been 40-footers, I don't know, in the North Sea. But in a little boat, about 30 feet long, uh, when you're in 30-foot waves, uh, your heart goes right up to here, and then it goes way down to there. So he's talking about the experiences that we have. And did not the disciples do this in Christ's time? They were afraid. And he just laid there and was taking a nap. <laughs> What's wrong with you? We're about to die up here. Well, he spoke, and it calmed down. These things were written back here, and then you can go forward and you find the same story in the New Testament or in in the end-time prophecies, and they've been fulfilled once and maybe again and again, because God writes these things and He causes them to happen. Anyway, they're fearful, and their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunk man, and are at their wit's end. I've seen a kid lay on the boat of a, on the bottom of a boat, uh, 
crying and screaming, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. God save me. Kid about 14 years old when we were in that kind of seas. He was at his wit's end, believe me. He was about to go stark raving crazy. Then they cry to the eternal in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He makes the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Uh, using this metaphor to describe to us the way it's been in the church, the way it's been in our lives spiritually. Uh, stormy seas, rough times, and then God is going to calm it down, smooth it out. Everything's going to work. The fear will disappear. And he tells us, fear not there in Isaiah 42. And many, many places throughout those scriptures. Verse 31, O oh, that men would praise the Eternal for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. So he uses that story to show us that even no matter how rough it gets out there, He's going to calm it, He's going to fix it, so we need to praise Him. Let them exalt Him also in the congregation of the people, and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. That would be here and now, wouldn't it? Today, last day of unleavened bread, we're assembled here in the congregation to consider these words. He turns rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground. He can go both ways. He can make places desolate, and he can raise them up. A fruitful land into barrenness, for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. That's what he's done with Jerusalem. It's been barren and desolate for many generations. That's going to turn around in our day. He turned the wilderness into a standing water and dry ground into water springs. He can do it that way, too. That's what he's going to do. And there he makes the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city for habitation. So he's taking us from the thought that there is no, or that they might go to a city of habitation, weren't there, didn't have it, then that he will deliver, and he sends them to prepare one. We have to build a city, prepare it for habitation. That's what Daniel 9 is about. Build Jerusalem, build up the walls, get it fixed, just in time for the beast to set up the abomination of desolation there when we have to flee for our very lives. But he also talks about building villages for people to come to. Jerusalem will be built as a towns without walls. Not one, but several. Maybe seven would be my guess, but I don't know that. A place for the hungry to dwell. A place for those who can't find the living bread to come to. Verse 37, And sow the fields and plant vineyards which may yield fruits of increase. What does he tell us there at the end of Zechariah 3? That during this time that we are now in, in the very short near future, every man will have his own vine and fig tree. And that's under the beginning of the work when the witnesses in the end time church begins to come back together. He's just telling you the story before he wrote it out in those specific prophecies. He blesses them also so that they are multiplied greatly and suffers not their cattle to decrease. It says those little villages will have much men and cattle there in Zechariah 2. Again, they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. So he says, that's the way it's been. Again, I'll say this again. He pours contempt upon princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. The evangelists of yore, many of them dead now, but the few that are left tell you, just go my way and everything will be fine for you. And some who have raised themselves to that status and above, but they still don't know what they're doing. There is men, no man among them, who can lead them. We have a lot of truth right here. Can we lead anybody? Nobody will even listen, will they? You can't lead people who think they know what they're doing, but don't have a clue. 
We can deceive ourselves so easily that we think we know exactly what's going on and we may not know what's going on. So our former leadership is contemptible. Verse 41, Yet sets he the poor on high from affliction or out of affliction and makes him families like a flock. So he is going to take one from here, one from there, from the north, south, east, and west, bring them together, and make them a family. He has called us here, given us this knowledge, to begin the process. We are here to prepare a place for God's remnant to come. I believe that's why we are here. To get it established. A place to go to when God shows his hand. The righteous shall see it and rejoice. They don't see it yet. God hasn't done anything that would cause them to think anybody but a bunch of idiots that moved out in the desert are there. Again, I ask. And again, I say, first, we aren't important any more than anyone else. We're the weakest and the basest, obviously. And it isn't because we're smart that God has given us the knowledge that we now have that has caused us to come where we are. It doesn't make us special. It makes Him special. But that being said, if God opens our minds to it, He doesn't open somebody else's minds to it, We are not to sit back and say, well, that would be proud or vain to claim that we're to do this because God wanted us to. No, if God opens your mind to it, He then expects you to do it. Otherwise, why would He do it? Just so you could have vanity and say, well, I know what's going on. I know what the purpose is. No, that doesn't do anybody any good. The only reason he opened your mind and mine was so we would do something about it. That's why. Because he just needed a crew to come out and prepare the way. This information is now all over the Internet if they want it. But most of them don't. God will make his presence known in his own way, in his own time. He is the one that is special, not any of us. But we can do something special to help him show who he is, not who we are. It doesn't matter who we are. It matters who he is. We must keep that perspective and not become self-righteous because we may know a few things that somebody else has not yet been shown or discovered. But let us move forward. You see, God, if he gives you knowledge, expects you to use it. And Herbert Armstrong used to say, and advisedly so, If you do not use the knowledge you have, it will be taken away. Now, have we not seen the very knowledge of the truth of God taken away from thousands of people who despised it by not using it to its ultimate strength and power, including us? That's why the church has been scattered. We did not cherish it in the way that he wanted us to. So he sets the poor on high from affliction and makes him families like a flock. We need to be poor in spirit, meek and humble, not proud and vain. Be servants. If you're here to prepare a place for people, Then what do you do? When they start showing up, you were hosts and hostesses to serve them and help them to get settled, to get their feet under them, to strengthen them, to encourage them that, yes, indeed, you're doing the right thing. Whatever. We're here 
as helpers. Not great fancy offices, not great fancy this or that or any kind, but to be helpers, to be servants. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquities shall stop her mouth. People are going to be so inspired that they're going to finally say, yeah, I need to get rid of iniquity. Whoso is, wise, or whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the eternal. There aren't very many, but he says, who is? Flip over to Jeremiah 9 for a moment. We've seen this one before and gone through it, but verse 11 of chapter 9, Jeremiah. Now, here's what he says he will do. We've read this, and we have other scriptures we can tie with it. He says, I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of dragons, or lizards. I saw lizards there the other day. And I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. The cities of the true Judah... We don't even know where are. They scrape the foundations to the point you can't find them. And there's not an inhabitant there. Jerusalem is a heap, a pile of rubbish. Now he repeats the thought we just read, verse 12. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Eternal has spoken, that he may declare it? For what the land perishes and is burned up like a wilderness, that none passes through. Has God not given us knowledge that Jerusalem has been desolate for many generations? That it is a den of dragons and jackals as it puts in another place? There's nothing there? And who would know that? How would you know that? How many people know where the true promised land is? And where Zion is? And where Jerusalem is? Not very many. Otherwise, why would he even pose the question? Who is wise to know that? We weren't. No one else is. The only reason we need to know ahead of time is so we can go there and prepare a place for people to come when the time is right. And it needs to be prepared both physically and spiritually. Above all, spiritually. So Psalm 107, verse 43, fits Jeremiah 9, hand in glove. <clears throat> Now, the one who, ones who observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the eternal. How kind it is, if we think about it, that God has shown us what he has shown us. Wow. It's incredible knowledge that we've been given. Chapter 108. Oh God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? We've been brokenhearted, we've been upset, we've been confused and frustrated in the church. And when we begin to understand these things about preparing a habitation and tying Isaiah and Jeremiah together with the Psalms, it kind of fixes the heart, doesn't it? It makes you know that God is there and He's going to take care of things. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. And it says when people see his hand and they come stirred to action from all over the world, they will come with singing and hymns and giving praise to God. Awake, psaltery and harp. The music and joy of singing to God has been muted and almost gone from the land because of dejection and sorrow and frustration. So he says, wake up. Instruments of music. I myself will awake early. Uh, there's another scripture that is quoted several times in the prophecies. When I put this on you, you will arise and you will repent and you will awake early. I think that one's toward the end of Hosea, maybe Joel, several places. 
I will praise you, O Eternal, among the people, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. Now, this is the swelling joy and emotion that Israel felt when they saw the seas cover their enemies. Pharaoh and his horsemen went down. So they sang songs of joy when that happened. Now, they turned and murmured, and things went south, as you know. But this time, it will not happen that way. This time with God's Spirit, this time with the mystery of God about to be revealed, His people are going to maintain. They're going to keep a right attitude, and for the most part, they will escape the horrors that are coming. I'll praise you, O Eternal, among the people, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. God's truth has been pushed down, shoved out, ridiculed, but it's going to reach the heavens. It's going to be proclaimed around the world as a witness, and then the end will come. Hasn't happened yet, has it? That your beloved may be delivered. The truth of these things we're learning about the promised land and Jerusalem and Zion is going to cause people to come and be delivered. They'll know where to go and what to do. What an incredible blessing to be used of God to help people see where they need to go and what they need to do. That's what preparing a habitation and getting things lined up and prepared is about. We need to understand our job. We need to understand our work, what we are here for, so that we don't get sidetracked or ho-hum or lulled back to sleep or taking it for granted, but we're here front and center and not getting tired of being admonished and pushed and hammered on and conjoled and encouraged and whatever tools you might have in your verbal toolbox to try to keep people moving in the right direction. It is worth it. It will be worth it. It says so right here. What greater thing could you do than help God's beloved be delivered? You want to know what the work is in the end time? Save with your right hand and answer me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. So he begins to recount here those who will come to prominence in the eyes of God, and those then who will not. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Edom has had one shoe dropped in a sense, and they're about to have the other shoe dropped on them. Waiting for the other shoe to drop. Is that where that saying came from? Is right here? I don't know. Over Philistia will I triumph. So God says, I'm going to set these aside, these will be mine, these others will not. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Will not you, O God, who has cast us off? We see the Edomites rising above us, the banksters around the world, destroying the economy, and taking everything that we have worked to have for themselves and leaving everyone as peasants. Treasonous they are. All those offices back in Washington and New York, it's treason against God's people Israel. And God will take care of it. Vengeance is His. It isn't ours. It isn't our job to fight it. But he will take care of it very soon. And those who commit treason against God's people are going to be in deep trouble. 
Will you not, O God, go forth with our hosts? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Where are you going to get help when the economy collapses, the great crash of Zephaniah 1? Your Social Security will be cut off. Your pensions will be cut off. Food stamps will be cut off. Care and share will go away. Medicare and Medicaid will disappear. Who are you going to go to? Where are you going to find an answer? Through God we shall do valiantly, for it is He that shall tread down our enemies. He will take care of the problem for us. If they want to have some March on Washington or some Occupy Wall Street or whatever they want to do, we will not be involved. We are not going to fight them. God will take care of our enemies. He will handle it. Let's go on a little bit further here. I'll try not to hold us too long. I know we're probably getting tired at the end of this and... Uh, don't want to hold you too long, but we, we've got another nearly 40 minutes of allotted time. Maybe I won't use all of it. Psalm 109. Hold not your peace, O God of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. Well, God shows us He's going to deliver. He's going to take care of these things. But enemies will arise. Now, He tells us ahead of time, I will take care of that. That doesn't mean that they won't arise. <clears throat> they speak against us with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. Let's not give them a cause. Let's just obey God, and that'll be cause enough, guaranteed. If you serve God, the world will turn against you. <clears throat> For my love, they are my adversaries. I try to love, I try to help, I try to give Good words, good example of how we should be, but they're adversaries and they're not going to listen. But I give myself to prayer. So what we have to do is not worry about the enemies or the adversaries, but give ourselves to devotion to God in prayer and seeking His answers. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So no matter what we do for people, uh, the church, whatever, we're giving some information out that would help them if they really understand it and, and try to do something with it. But they won't. Ninety percent won't, even when it becomes, you would think, obvious by what God does. Set you a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds uh, and, and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he has, and let the stranger spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. That's a pretty big mouthful, isn't it? Is that the kind of nasty, mean attitude we ought to have against our enemies? Aren't we to love our enemies, those that despitefully use us and persecute us? Let's think about this just for a moment, kind of take it apart. He's looking at the world who is going to turn against God and God's people. And he says, set a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right hand. Now, what does he tell us in the New Testament? He says if somebody will not follow God's ways, that we are to put them out and to what? Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that they might learn and repent. And that simple statement is stated here in a larger mouthful over many verses. In other words, the thought here is I'm trying to serve God. They're trying to pull me away from my reward and take my crown from me. Therefore, 
turn them over to the devil, let them learn the hard way, and then maybe they'll repent. And is that not exactly what God is going to do? He is going to turn the population of the earth over to Satan and the beast and the false prophets. And they are literally going to kill over 90% of the people on earth. And those who survive the seven last plagues at the end of all that are going to be humble. They are going to be meek. They're going to say... Where is this God that I may serve Him? I'm tired of all my relatives and my friends and my acquaintances and my neighbors being killed. I'm tired of cancer and diabetes and heart disease and whatever else may appear to kill people as a result of famine and pestilence. That's all he's saying here. It's not that he has a personal vendetta against all these people, but the only way they're ever going to learn is just to be turned over to Satan. And that's what God is, it's exactly what God is going to do. So we don't need to be angry with them. We need to pity them in a way of what they're going to have to go through to be humbled and meek. And hopefully we can do it on our own, get rid of our pride, our vanity, our ego, our self-defenses, and all the things that we have to protect ourselves and be humble and meek with each other. That's what he expects of us. They're not going to solve their problems. We're supposed to solve ours. If you extend mercy, give them their way, let them do what they want, that doesn't help them. You've got to cut it off. Verse 13, let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. <clears throat> It'll be recalled in the great white throne judgment when those people who did die will also be humbled. Let them be before uh, the eternal continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. So if you serve God and begin to get rid of your vanity and ego and become like Christ said in Matthew 5, we're supposed to be in the be attitudes or the attitudes to be in, then they're going to hate you. And that gets in your way of serving God. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing, like as with his garments, so let it uh, come into his bowels like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him as the garment which covers him, and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. Let him wear the fruits of that kind of an attitude. Let this be the reward of my adversaries from the eternal. This is God's deal. And of them that speak evil against my soul. But do you for me, O God, the eternal, for your name's sake, because your mercy is good, deliver you me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. We, our hearts hurt. He says, blessed are those that sigh and cry for the abominations that we see around us. We are affected by this world around us and its culture. And doesn't it get frustrating at times to try to serve God and at the same time you've got everything in the world pulling you a different direction? Wouldn't you just like to scream sometimes at the conditions you see? That's all he's saying here. I'm sick and tired of this mess. I want you to take care of it. They won't let me serve you. I'm poor and needy. My heart is wounded within me. I am gone like the shadow when it declines. You know, in the evening as the sun goes down, your shadow gets longer and longer, and then it just sort of disappears. He says, that's the way I feel. I feel like I'm a shadow that's just disappearing off the face of the earth. 
or as he expressed it a few chapters back, my feet have well nigh slipped. I'm about to fall down and not be able to get up. I am gone like the shadow when it declines. I am tossed up and down as the locust. Ever see a, a wind with flies or insects or locusts in it and the wind currents are taking them up and down and all around? Butterfly with those big old wings and he's, ooh, ooh, he gets blown all over the place. He said, I just feel like something in a big wind and I, I, I have no control. Frustrating. My knees are weak through fasting. My flesh fails of fatness. I feel inside skinny and lean and weak. That's what he's saying. I became also a reproach to them. When they looked upon me, they shook their heads. Isn't that what they did with Christ? He says his Father will deliver him. Let him deliver him. No. God didn't deliver him. They laughed. They mocked him. They put him to scorn. They shed his blood. Parted his garments. And they'll do the same thing with the righteous today unless we come under God's protection. Help me, O Lord my God, O save me according to your mercy. What else can we cry for, brethren? I can't say, Lord, save me. You know, I'm good. <laughs> oh, yeah? Would you like to rephrase that, Daryl? You know, I've done everything you've told me to do and more. Oh, yeah? No, we, we, we can't go to God with our goodness, with our obedience, with how wonderful we are, can we? No. The only thing we can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Please have mercy. Save me according to your mercy. Not my great deeds, not my wondrous works. Have mercy, O Lord. Let, uh, that they may know that this is your hand. That you, Lord, have done it. You know, we have the powers that be in the world today. We can't do anything about it. I don't like what the Fed is doing to our economy or Wall Street or Washington. What can I do about it? Tax protest? That'd be a big help. March on Washington with a deer rifle? That'd be a big help. Vote them out? The guy you just voted in is just as bad as the one you just voted out. They're a product of the culture and society they grew up in. They're full of greediness, selfishness, the occult, false religion, and false everything. You can't do anything about it. But they can do something about us, can't they? They will come against God's people and they will martyr about 90% of them before this is done. Sad. But he is going to raise up a remnant that he will protect and he will protect their leaders. And they will go up against those people. And they will know that God has done it, not man. That's the plea. That's the prayer. And that is the prophecy that shall be fulfilled. Let them curse, but bless you. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant Rejoice. It's going to come that way. Where even seven, maybe eight principal men, as Micah puts it in chapter 5, will go out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land and will chase the Assyrian off. Now, they can come into the United States, and they will. And it will go into captivity. But when they reach that area that God has put a wall of fire around, they will not be able to penetrate. They cannot stop. They will be stopped. And God will give power to His witnesses. 
And it's not just two. If you go back to Isaiah again, chapter 43, it says, speaking of the congregation, you are my witnesses. All of us. Not just two men. Two will take the message. But the whole church remnant, the latter temple, will be the witness that God is God. And they, those people in the world, cannot do anything about it. Pharaoh and his horsemen thought they could do something about it. Ah, oh, we shouldn't have let them go. And our firstborn are dead, and they've got our jewels, and there they go. Let's go get them. And the sea parted, and God's people went through. And Pharaoh said, we'll go too. And they drowned, and not one survived. This is coming again. It's coming again. Let my adversaries be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own confusion as with a blanket. I will greatly praise the Eternal with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, not just an inner thing, but outwardly to anyone. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. Deliverance from our God is coming again, just as it did at the Red Sea, pictured by this very day. Believe it. Prepare for it. And be part of it.